Welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 45, recorded April 9th, 2013, Time Redeemed. This audio podcast is sponsored by Liquid Networks, providing quality, affordable websites and website hosting. We understand how the web works so that you don't have to. Get your free quote today by visiting www.liquidnetworksinc.com. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And I want to continue talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we, We established last week that the very basis of faith the, the gospel and our walking God is believing in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I, I realize that there are many believers who have never plumbed the depths of what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. And so I want to go back again and look at this and probably will. Jesus, interestingly, after he rose from the dead, he stayed around the disciples for six weeks, convincing them that he was risen from the dead. And then he ascended and so on. But if he took six weeks to imprint upon them that he was alive, then I think at least we could take a few weeks And so I want to read from John chapter 20 and in verse 11. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. I'll leave it there. It's that question that has haunted me in the last week. I mean, haunted in a very good way. (laughs) Jesus said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Uh, The context, um, very quickly, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Mary uh, came very early on the Sunday morning, and um, it was still dark, and she saw enough that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, and she turned and ran back and, and got hold of Peter and John, and they ran to the tomb. She came following after them, and they went into the tomb, and they are confused. John has the beginnings of faith uh, through what he saw, but essentially they, they come out of the tomb with no answers and no, no talking. They're just stunned and they go on their way back to the city. But Mary stayed there, and as far as she is concerned, I mean, put yourself in her mind, she has come through the horrors, the unspeakable horrors, that not only took place in the person and body of Jesus on that Friday afternoon, but she had been one of the women who had watched from the base of the cross. She had seen him in the agony, the anguish of his suffering. She had been there, 
And she was among the women who had gone with the body of Jesus that the men were carrying. And she sat with the other women and watched as they put the body of Jesus into the tomb. She watched as the stone was rolled over the door. She has gone through this agony that he died he was the one they called Messiah, confessed at times he was the son of God, even though they could hardly imagine what that meant. They had hung upon his promises, the hopes that were in him, and he died. And it's over. It's finished. And so she had come in the middle of the night, uh, in the very early darkness of Sunday morning, simply to weep at the tomb. She is a woman coming to the gravestone. She is coming to the corpse and, and there to just weep for there's nothing else to do. And then she finds that the stone's rolled away, the body's gone. I mean, what can she think except this grotesque insult has been added to their anguish and agony that someone has stolen the body? It's their only, what else can they think at that time? That's where she's at, and, and she's weeping. And maybe the word weep would be too gentle a word. I mean, this woman, along with all the others, but we're talking about her right now, it, it, it's the sobs of a life that has come to an end. What else is there left? He's gone. And she's standing outside the tomb, and thus she is weeping. And, and for whatever reason, she stoops to look again into the tomb, almost as if maybe we missed the body sort of thing. And, and now it's half light in the morning, and she sees the two. They are angels. They are messengers from another dimension. They, they are coming from the heavenly side, and one is sitting where the head of Jesus had been laid, and the other is sitting where his feet had been. And, and they're just sitting there. And she is stooping down to look into that chamber of death, the tomb. And as she looks, one angel says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And I might say that the word woman, it's a bit rough in English, but in the Hebrew language, it was the term of highest respect and honor. And, and and so, woman, why are you weeping? Uh, and, and what, I mean, it's just a sidebar, but he, here is an angel who is asking the question. She answers as if it was anybody that she knew. I, I, she seemed oblivious that these are angels. These are creatures that are in the tomb. And, and surely that would say something different to what you think has happened here. But all she blurts it out, she says, they've taken away my Lord. There's been a grave robbery. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. And and that's it. That, that amazes me that, that she's in such, she's drowning in grief that she doesn't even recognize the unusualness of two angels being in the tomb. And she turns around and sees a silhouette of a human in those early morning hours. And again, just from where she's at and the limits of what she can think, she thinks it must be the gardener, the maintenance man. And he... Of course, is Jesus, but that's the last thing on her mind. He says, and he says it again, so it's the second time the question has been raised. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds the question, whom are you seeking? Now, that's a strange question to ask anyone 
in a cemetery. You get my drift. If I go into a graveyard and I see someone weeping, that is of no surprise to me. No surprise. Uh, a graveyard is a place of weeping. Go to the local cemetery and expect people to be there by the graveside weeping. Yet Jesus asks the question. He asks it gently with compassion, with no guilt and no shame. He doesn't say you ought to know better than this, you know. No, just simply, compassionately, gently ask the question, why are you weeping? Now, I'm fascinated by the question. Why are you weeping? Just, just a minute, Jesus. Why, why don't you get to the point? Why, bottom line here, why don't you tell this poor woman who you are? Why don't you, you just get her out of this um, total grief, this tsunami of grief that she's in, get, get her out of it by just whatever. Say, cheer up, Mary, it's me, I'm alive, or something like that. Instead, she thinks you're the gardener and you ask the question, why are you weeping? I don't know. I don't know if you see the strangeness of that, but it comes yet further because as I go through these accounts of Jesus' resurrection, they're full of questions that he asks, strange questions, like this is a strange question. And of course, as I've told you before, um, the whole Bible is full of God's questions. That, that's his M.O. He asks questions and really, one reason, I believe, is that we, we just can't take what he's going to say head on. Our, our brains are not ready for it. And so he comes at us sort of obliquely and he asks a question that gets us looking in a different direction, which is the direction that he's going. So why are you weeping? He's going to take her somewhere. But then I come back to say, why does he ask questions? I mean, he limitlessly knows us. He knows everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. Every... He knows. So he, he's not asking questions for information. Why does he ask questions? You know, I think it's because he is infinitely interested in us. Have you noticed that love, and I speak of love at its, its the highest human beings can get in terms of love. Love is fascinated with the beloved. Love gazes at the beloved with an interest that is blinders to everything else that might be going on. I, I was watching um, the other day uh, as a mother here at our, our fellowship that we have in Bandera. The, the mother had the baby in a newborn and the, the, the little baby was in her arms, and the mother was just looking at the face of the baby, looking to the point where I don't think she knew anyone else around her at that point, or even perhaps she didn't know she was in Bandera. She was just looking at the face of the baby, and, and what the baby was doing, if I could say doing, I mean, it was the the little apparent smile that came on its face, the little twitch of the eyelids, and the mother was almost reflecting what the baby was doing. The, the mother was engrossed in the baby. Love, and I think mother love is, is the pinnacle of what a human being can do in terms of love. And, and that, that mother love, I say it again, was fascinated just by every little movement of the baby's face. Can, can I tell you this? 
God is love, and Jesus is the word, the outspeaking of that love. And love is so interested in you. Love is fascinated by you. Love is engrossed with you. God loves you, and he came to us in Jesus. And love wants to know us. He wants to hear our heart. He wants to enter into our feelings. He wants to get inside our thoughts because he loves you and is limitlessly interested in you. He, he loves and wills to know your deepest self. He enters into our joy. He enters into our fears, into our sorrows, into our confusions. But he wants to hear that from us. He wants me to tell him our fear. He, he wants to hear from me he, the joy and the sorrow. He, he wants it from us. So not just knowing us because he's God, the same way as he knows when a worm turns and when a mosquito flies. No, he has a relationship to us that would know us in an atmosphere where it is safe to be honest. Of course, the, the, the miserable God of religion, it's not safe to be honest around him. He's going to whack you if you say the wrong word. And so you speak in funny King James English about things you don't really believe. No, not the real God. The real God wants you just to talk, just to tell him, woman, why are you weeping? He wants to know from where she's at, from her perceptions, with no condemnation. He wants to be one with us, to totally share our life, to see life through our eyes, to hear it through our ears, reported through our mouth. You see, love, by any definition of the word, demands an exchange of hearts. You get inside my heart, I get inside of yours. Love, by definition, doesn't hide. You can spill it all out because love trusts. And so she answered him, out of her grief, out of the horror of what she perceived, there's been a grave robbery. I don't know where they've taken him. Have you taken him, she said. Have you taken him? I, again, it, it's, it's almost mindless what she's saying, that if you've taken him, tell me where you put him so I can go and pick him up and bring him back. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? That would suggest, the question suggests, you see, as I said, he's turning her to another possibility. He's suggesting that something else would be appropriate, that, that there's an alternative to weeping. There's a something else you could be doing right now. And the very question, why are you weeping, suggests that, that something else would be more appropriate. You follow me? He, he's, he's opening up new possibilities other than weeping at death's destruction. What he's actually saying is, Mary, why are you weeping for this? This, though it's a tomb, though it's the chamber of death, I've overcome death. It is more appropriate to be laughing right now laughing with a laugh from another world, laughing as only God can laugh, joy right here in the face of death, laugh and dance and be filled with joy, for I have overcome death. There's a new kind of life and there's a new possibility of living that is beyond all human comprehension, beyond all ancestor thinking. 
living with a life that cannot die. It's time to laugh. It's time for joy. And then, whom do you seek? Do, do you hear that question? Whom do you seek? She came to weep at the tomb of a corpse. And why would she weep at the tomb of a corpse? Because the person has gone. She saw him die. The person has gone. But I can go to the tomb and weep at the corpse. That's why I weep. Why are you weeping? That's why I weep. But Jesus' question said, whom, whom? He didn't say, what are you seeking, as you would say if it were a corpse. He said, whom, which is when you are talking of a person. Jesus was moving her. It's no longer a corpse, Mary. He is risen from the dead, and he, the person in a body that cannot die, is to be found here. Why are you weeping? Right there, in the tomb, in the chamber of horrors, in what she believes is this grotesque robbery that's added to her pain and her loss, in the very midst of what she perceives as death and pain and hurt, he meets her and redirects her. Not a place for weeping. It's a place for laughter. This is not a place for looking for a corpse. It's the place of the person who no longer is dead but lives forevermore. You know, this whole story and the question applies to us. And, and I want you to really listen to me right now. This is a cameo of our life outside of Christ. So let me go straight at it. This is not the easiest thing to talk about. I don't know that you've ever thought about it, but when Adam introduced sin into the world, when the satanic lie was believed... And mankind entered into the domain of death, sin, shame, guilt, Satan. When that happened, creation fell with him. Animals became predators. Beautiful flowers turned into weeds and so on. The ground no longer was responsive to growing anything that was edible. Adam had to do it now in the sweat of his brow. Creation was changed. Have you ever thought the fact that time and space are part of creation? And when sin entered into creation, the time in which we live, the tick-tock, tick-tock, time changed. Okay, what do I mean by that? We are moving through time right now. When I said we're moving through time, that's already gone. We're moving through time. And what I just said what, what, what happened to what I said? It dropped behind me, dropped behind me, and you, as you listen to it, it dropped behind you into, what shall I say, a rigor mortis? You know, the, the rigidity of a corpse? It, it went back into death. That, that is, it, it, it's, that's it. It was said, it was done, and that's it. It solidified into a kind of stone text, events. Everything that is, I'm saying it, I'm doing it, it's happening to me, is immediately becomes 
was. You understand? So that I'm forever looking at my life through the rearview mirror. It's behind me now, solidified in a rigor mortis. It is there as I said it, as I did it, as it was done to me. And it's unchangeable. It's irreversible. You realize the last 20 minutes of my saying to you, I can't change it. I can't. It is said. It is done. For better, for worse. It's said. It's done. And I cannot change it. It's already in my rearview mirror as something I said. It's irreversible. I, I can't change that. I can say to you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, or I, I wish I'd have said, but then that too becomes part of my rearview mirror, irreversible. And I look back and I see all my words, 75 years of words, words spoken to multitudes, words spoken to one or two or three, words spoken when only I was present, but words, and every one of them, are unchangeable. They are irreversible. And my actions, things I did, everything, irreversible. Decisions made. I mean, it, it, it can be, a, I'll get the next plane and that decision might have, well, it did open up a whole thing that never would have been but for that decision, and I can't change it. And, and, and that decision puts me in this seat now. It's all unchangeable. Once said, once done, instantly it's become a was, a part of the past. What we did, what we said, what you said, what I said, and what others said to us, what others did to us. It's all there, unchangeable, irretractable. And you see, we stand at the tomb of our life and we weep at the tomb of our life and our tears are saying, if only... If only this had happened instead of that. If only I had said that. If only I'd acted then. If only I'd have kept my mouth shut. If only I had not done that. What if all oh, the anguish of that? What if I had? And then in my anguish and tears, why did I do it? Why did I do it? How could I have done it? You know, and then to those who did to us and the others who were part of this intricacy of decisions and words, the others, and we weep and we say, how could you have done that? How could you have said that? And it echoes back through the graveyard of my past. Why did you do that? We weep at the tomb. Do you, do you understand? You see, it's dead. It's dead. I can't do anything. All I can do is weep over the past and recognize death. But also into that mix, we weep at the tomb of disillusionment with the God, small g, God of religion, the God they taught us about, the God that they defined to us, the God our ancestors passed on to us, a God totally unlike the God revealed in Jesus, a cruel God, a vengeful God, a dangerous God. But you know how many? Oh, I've heard it, I don't know how many times, from people who dare to talk about it. 
because most dare not give a voice to their tears of frustration and disillusionment with the one they think is God. But they, they're terrified to say it. What would the church say if I said that? What would God do if I ever admitted my thoughts? But there's an anger. Why did you allow this? Why did you do this? How could you do this? I remember back there in church people saying, if God is a God of love, how could this happen? Anger at God. But that's rarely talked about. We weep silently at the tomb of our disillusionment at religion. We weep in frustrated anger because we want to change it. We want to go back into the graveyard and, and adjust things and take those words and destroy them and take a piece of rock and put new words on it. We want to change it. And with that, we want revenge. We want justice. All the way back to childhood, Abuse, sometimes multiple abuse, multiple forms of abuse into teenage, into adulthood, betrayal, frustrated anger. If only, if only it could be changed, if only it could be different. The failures of life, and we stand before bankruptcies, losses that changed our life and our family, divorces that ripped apart relationships and we despair because it's irreversible. It's unchangeable. And then the pain is so much, we take drugs to numb the pain. And so that's the world, that's the human race. You know, even joy is part of that graveyard because joy too, the way we have joy now and then it's, it's gone, it's a was. Oh, we got a photograph of it, but that's about all we do have because we can never repeat that. We can't go back and say, that was the happiest day of my life. Let's make it every day of my No, it's all there. And we call this graveyard of death memories. It's gone. It is no more. Well, no more. Yeah, it is no more. But from that tomb of death there spews out present pain. Lies, distortions of what really happened back there. And the shame of what happened. I feel dirty today because of what happened. And it's destroying our lives today. You know, the prophet Ezekiel, strange prophet, saw some strange things. And one of the strangest things he saw was a valley full of dead bones. It was a boneyard. It was a graveyard that uh, had on the surface of the ground turned now into thousands of bones. And God, yeah, yeah, his MO, he asked a question, a crazy question like most of his questions first seemed to be. He said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, who knew how to talk to God, he said, well, you only know that. Meaning, if you ask me, it's pretty far gone, but I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say you can do whatever you want to do. Can these bones live? Can this graveyard of irreversible and unchangeable ever come to life? Can we ever stop weeping over the tomb of the past? Can these bones live? And 
his God's question introduces the unthinkable because the answer to God's question was and now is yes. The boneyard can be raised up, resurrected as a mighty army of people. And Jesus said, why are you weeping? Do I hear behind that question, can these bones live? Could it be? Could it be this is a day of laughter and joy? Could it be? Because he, oh Lord Jesus, he is asking the question as the one who very recently has walked out of death. And is now and forever shall be beyond its power. Because Jesus is not part of the graveyard. Jesus is not a memory. He's not a photo of something that is no more. He is not a text in a dusty book in the library. He's standing there more alive than any creature has ever been. As he would say, I am the living one. I was dead. I was back there in the rearview mirror. I went into the graveyard. I went to the boneyard. Behold, I'm alive. I am no longer a was, but I am is, as is has never been said, for I am alive forevermore. I have conquered death. I've conquered the graveyard. Why are you weeping? This is a time for cartwheels. This is a time for dancing. This is a time for feasting and Celebration, why are you weeping? Laugh, laugh, the laugh of resurrection. (laughs) Every hope that he had ever presented, every dream, every promise he'd ever made, now has leapt into life because they all thought that was gone and that was dead. But As it leapt into life, it leapt with a blossom from another world, heaven itself. Because the fulfillment of those hopes and those dreams now are beyond anything they'd ever thought he was talking about. Look, this is the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you believe in your heart with your whole life that God raised Jesus from the dead, things can never be the same. The graveyard behind us, it can never be the same. Never be the same. Nothing can ever be the same. Nothing. Because he was dead and he's alive. What do I mean? Look, At the heart of the gospel is the most misunderstood word in gospel English. It's the word forgiveness. And what's misunderstood about it is that we define the word forgiveness from Webster's Dictionary, which is fine if you're just speaking English. But if you're finding out what God has to say, sometimes you have to ask, what did the chaps in the Bible mean by the word forgiveness? Now, that's a different kettle of fish. What does forgiveness mean? Let, let me say it, because it's, it's, it's more than a little bit. Forgiveness. And, and I, I am sure that as a Christian, you have said you are forgiven. And certainly preachers have told you that God has forgiven you. Okay, what did you mean when you said it? What did they mean when they said it? What does the Bible mean when it says it? If you are forgiven, 
If God has forgiven you, it means that He has personally, in Jesus Christ, reinstated you as though you had never sinned. You have been personally released from the past guilt and shame. You have been loosed from the liar and his lies. You've been loosed from the powers of darkness. That's what forgiveness means, you see. The, the word in the original language, it, 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 actually the best word is release. It means to be loosed. It means set at liberty. And it means that God himself, with a creative word, with the entire blood of Jesus in that word, says that your sin has been blotted out as if it never was. But that isn't all. Forgiveness is the recreative act of God by which he brings us back to life and he heals us within our innermost person of all the corruption and rottenness and wastedness, all the falling away into nothingness that sin would accomplish in us. And he has done all of that, all of that, because God the Son, who is God from God, came and united himself with us, with you, and he, hear me, he, Lord Jesus, he made himself responsible for your sin. That's the gospel. The scripture says it. He became, he became our sin. He became our guilt. He became our shame. He took to himself our judgment. Jesus, what's the meaning of his sufferings and death? He went through the rearview mirror. He went into the graveyard. He went all the way back to Adam. And he came all the way forward to us and beyond. He took us for he's God. But as human, he's one of us. He took us. He caused all of our iniquity, all our sin and sin we did, sin done to us. He takes it. He becomes it. And he came not only to the heart of sin, but coming to the very belly of hell. He destroyed it. He shredded it. It fell apart. And he rose out of death because he conquered death. He conquered our sin. He loosed us from it. He said, it's, it's, it's loosed, you're gone. You're, you're released. And he recreated us with his own life. And he introduced us along with himself, the beloved sons and daughters of the Father. It's a strange story in the gospel. Well, strange. It's just a little odd, just a bit different. Do you remember when the four chaps brought the paralyzed fellow down through the roof? Do you remember that? And he lays in front of Jesus. He can't lift a finger. He's paralyzed. And all the leaders of religion are sitting there with their most pious looks on their humbug faces and Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And immediately the leaders, the Pharisees, they said, who does this fellow think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, who is the presence of God in our humanity, forgiving us, Jesus said to them, and this is the strange, he says, Whether, what is easier for me to say your sins be forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But to show you that I have power on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the fellow and said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man leaped up and rolled up his bed and walked out. Jesus joined together there two actions. Sin, which to say your sins are forgiven you, actually is invisible. I, I, I mean, it happens inside my inner world. But then healed that, that demanded that there came life into these paralyzed muscles and ligaments, and it was a recreative miracle. And Jesus said it was the same thing. Interesting, very interesting. The word he said to the man, rise, take up your bed, that word rise there, it's not like us saying, well, no, get out of the chair. No, the word rise there in the Greek language is the word that describes resurrection. It's the word that describes what happened to Jesus on that resurrection Sunday morning, which is totally out of place. <laughs> I mean, anyone would hear that's a weird word to be using unless Jesus was linking his resurrection with what was happening there, but his resurrection with the forgiveness of sin. And he's illustrating, demonstrating rather, what forgiveness of sin is by having the man healed. Because forgiveness is the creative word of God that says to you, your sins are forgiven you, blotted out. And what does that look like in your life? It looks like you who have been paralyzed in the rearview mirror. There comes the very life of resurrection and looses you and releases you, recreates you, and you rise in the same power of Jesus' resurrection. It's now visible in you. The Bible calls that born again, born from above, regenerated, recreated. That's what it is to be forgiven. Huh. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Oh, religion. I hate religion. Why can't we go back to the scripture? Do you realize what forgiveness is? that your sins are blotted out as if you never did them? That's going back into the past, and the irreversible has been reversed. The unchangeable has been changed. I stand before God as a man. Blotted out all sin. And regenerated so that now I'm loosed from that past that would ever claw to control me by its horrors. I'm free. I'm free to be the beloved child of the Father. One more thing. I don't know if you know, in the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of stuff. And the fact is, even though it's the law, it's full of marvelous things that only God could understand. And he shared them with those Israelites in the desert. Well, one of those kind of strange things, odd things, was that if you touched a dead body, you were said to be unclean. The dead body gave you a certain uncleanness. That's the void in the Bible. 
so that you had to go outside the camp and for so many days. Or if you touched a leper or a leper touched you, you'd become unclean. And there's uh, quite a few things that make you... When another person or another a corpse would, would, would touch you in some way, you're unclean. Um, isn't it gloriously wonderful that in the Gospels, Jesus touched dead bodies? Only he didn't become unclean. They came to life. Isn't that marvelous? And he touched lepers and did not become unclean. But they were recreated to be without leprosy. Amazing. Do you realize how profound that is? Because that is still true. That odd, weird thing is true. Because I'm talking to people now, and I know it. I am talking to people who have been touched by death. I mean real death. I mean when wicked, perverted humans have touched you. When you were a little boy or a little girl or a teenager, you were touched by their vile death. And it ceased to be something that happened to you. You became, you felt yourself to be unclean, as if you had touched some abysmal depth of filth, and you were now dirty. Someone betrayed you. Someone manipulated, controlled you, and they, they put their wicked hands on your life, and you've felt dirty ever since. It's when uncleanness, which carries with it grief and sorrow, according to Scripture, it's when you're touched and stained by another's sin. And you go through life saying, it's my fault, I'm dirty, I'm untouchable, no one ever wants me, and, and the pain is so great, you try and disappear into the hole of alcohol and drugs. Look, Jesus reversed it. I say it again, when he touched the leper, he reversed the law of uncleanness, and the leper became clean. But at the cross, do you understand the sufferings and death of Jesus? He not only touched you, he got you in his arms. And he became one with you. As I said, he took full responsibility for your life and your sin. He took your uncleanness into his own self. He became unclean with our uncleanness. And he carried us into death and washed us and cleansed us with his blood. Oh, if I had another hour. I'd talk more, but let me quickly say, what is the meaning of the sufferings of Jesus? Were you physically abused? Jesus stood into your abuse and every blow that landed on him, every spittle in his face, every ripping the beard from his face, his physical abuse, he had joined into yours and he took it to himself. The betrayal of Judas held in it every betrayal that you've ever known. And I think I've said it before, the crucifixion began by stripping the person naked before they were nailed to the cross to be held up, to be mocked and gawked at by everyone, which any judge in this nation would say, that's sexual abuse. When you were being sexually abused, hear me, hear me, Jesus, 
entered into that and he took its uncleanness to his very self. He washed you with his love. It says in Ezekiel, he'll wash us with clean water and we'll be clean. 1 John 1 9 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And maybe the word all there is there because it includes what others have put upon us, their uncleanness. Well, what do I do? I revisit my life. I go back through the rearview mirror and I announce it. I run through my life and say, through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. He entered this boneyard, but he rose out of it to declare we are forgiven. For some people, it might take a few hours of getting away to go back and visit every one of those events and announce to them, I'm forgiven, I am cleansed by God himself. And out of that, we can now do the unthinkable. Because if, if God did that for us humans, then my forgiveness is wrapped up with everyone else's. And I can now forgive my abusers, forgive my betrayers. It doesn't mean I'm reconciled. It doesn't mean we're buddies. It means what I just said, release, loose. It means I release them to God so they no longer have their hands on my life. I've released them. Through Jesus Christ, I release. I set them loose to God for him to deal with them in his love. Oh, yeah, our life is still there. The event is still there, but you see, the event used to be oozing pus that came right into our life today. Now when I realize and rest in the fact that he took the pus to himself and defanged it, and when he came out of the tomb, have you ever noticed this? It was his body that went into the tomb. It was the same body that had hung on the cross. Only now, it was released from the possibility of death. But it was the same body, a deathless body, a body radiant with God's glory, but it was the same body. Same to the point where he still had the scars of the nails. He still had the gash of the spear in his side. He'd retained them. He retained his scars. Why? They are, I mean, when they put the nail through his hands, it was the epitome of wickedness. But now, he's alive. He conquered that. And he holds those scars now as his gold medal, his trophy that declares we won and wickedness lost and death lost. And in our lives, oh yeah, the event is back there, but it has no control over us anymore. In fact, now it's a mere scar. Not a mere scar. It's a glorious scar, a radiant scar that said he did it. He did it. And I am his gold medal who proclaims that he won. Well, there it is. Um, over time. Revisit your life. Announce that you are forgiven. You are released. And so I say to you, man, I say to you, woman, why do you weep? Why do you go back to the tomb of your life and weep? Or as another angel said to another group of women, why, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you go back and weep again over what was done? Why do you weep? It's time to laugh. 
It's time to dance. For he is the living one who was dead, but he's alive. And if he's alive, you're alive. For he died for you and he rose to bring you out of death. Father, we give you thanks. And I now bless everyone who listens. I bless in your name the God who is love, almighty power. I bless this people with the opening of the eyes of the understanding that they may see who they are in Jesus Christ. Amen. Malcolm Smith's ministry is dedicated to guiding believers into the reality of experiencing daily fellowship with the Father. This has been another message by Malcolm Smith. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including a full catalog, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org.